On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about food prices, specifically dairy prices. If you consume dairy, brace yourself because according to reports, you're going to be paying so much more come the new year. We're going to explain why. We're talking about the encampment situation in Hamilton because the judge's ruling on whether the city can enforce its bylaw, well, that ruling came down and we're going to tell you what it was and what it means. And we just passed an anniversary that got really no attention, but really should have because it was one of the really big technological electronic inventions of the past while. 20 years ago, the iPod was invented, changed a lot. We're going to talk about that. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I saw this um, story yesterday and I said, okay, we got to get our friend Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor on the show here, because it's a story kind of about him, but him talking about something that is happening in our grocery stores, in the food network, in the supply chain that boy, it is going to hit you and I expect hit you pretty hard based on what I'm reading. If you drink milk, if you put cream in your coffee, if you enjoy a yogurt for breakfast, if you have a little cheese with your wine in the evening, if you consume any other kind of dairy product, if you eat ice cream after dinner, you may be about to be in for a painful surprise because it appears prices for all these kind of things, anything dairy, are about to skyrocket in this country. Let me bring in the aforementioned Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, who joins us. Doctor, thank you for this today, as always. My pleasure. So I read this, and, uh, you know, you, uh, every time I read something that you've written, you are very measured, and you're very calm, and you're very, you know, uh, intellectual about all these things. This was the first one I read where you sounded a little bit PO'd about something that's happening in the world of food. <laughs> and And... Let's go back to the start of this. There is this thing in Canada called the Canadian Dairy Commission. Explain what the Canadian Dairy Commission is. It's partially why I'm a little bit upset, to be honest. Nobody really knows about the CDC, and it's a crown corporation representing all of us. Uh, the Canadian Dairy Commission was created back in 1967 to represent Canadians, um, and its mandate is to set fair prices for milk at farm gates, so milk produced by farmers so they can actually earn a decent living but in return of course for canadians we actually have access to uh, a stable domestic milk production that's basically kind of the moral contract that we have with dairy sector and, and the cdc is really uh, the broker in between uh so yes yes the cdc is is largely unknown by the Canadian public but their decisions are actually quite influential uh, it will impact well, it has impacted the lives of many Canadians. So every year they have to publish a recommendation, um, a public recommendation as to how much more uh, farmers should get for their milk, given the inflation, given costs and everything else. And so typically every year you expect an increase of 1%, 2%. Uh, this year, on Friday, they posted a recommendation. It came in at 8.4%. That is huh. huge. It's, it's almost double uh, the previous record. And I can tell you right now, a lot of people in the dairy sector are concerned because, you know, if you actually increase prices like that for a, 
a very locked-in commodity because dairy is not like beef or anything else because people may say, well, everything else is going up, why not milk? Well, milk is different because it's a closed market. It, there's a quota system and everything else. So really, you have to be careful how you regulate because when you increase prices by 8.4%, consumers have no choice. They have to buy cane products. Right. So there's no competition that could push the prices down. It's quite important. Right. There's no competition that could force this price down. Exactly. So there are a few imports coming in, but the bottom line is that if you want cheese in Canada uh, or butter or yogurt, uh, it was made here in Canada, and processors have to buy cane milk in order to make the yogurt we buy or the cheese we buy. And so, obviously, not only fluid milk would be impacted by the decision, but everything in the dairy section. Right. So the, so the, the milk price goes up by X cents per liter, but then the, the, the person who's making the cheese, well, they've had to pay more, plus they need to keep their profit margin, so they're going to raise it by a little more than that, and then so-and-so. And then when it gets to the grocery stores, they also have to pay more, plus have their profit margin. So we're, it would seem logical, then, we're going to get hit with this, ultimately. Absolutely. So just, just to keep it things simple for your audience, uh, so this decision will likely increase your milk uh, your fluid milk prices by, say, 8 to 10% retail as of February 1st. Just to give you an idea, that's double the inflation rate right now. Uh, as for dairy products, across the board, you're looking at increases of anywhere 10 to 15%. That's probably going to happen during the month of February of 2022. Yeah. And, you know, for, for all the people who... You kind of turn a blind eye if you see things go up a little bit here or there. That's the kind of increase where you start to take notice and start to start and and start to start start making decisions on what you're buying. Oh, absolutely. You know, so you can think, you think about all dairy alternatives like soya milk or almond milk, or uh, people will start thinking about those things. And of course, there's goat milk, and and frankly, there's just walk away from dairy altogether. Those are options, but. Here's, here's the biggest concern of all, uh, and, and probably people listening in may not notice if it does happen. What's, what's likely to happen, it has happened before. When milk prices go too, when be, become too expensive in Canada, and by the way, industrial milk in Canada is already the most expensive in the world right now before this increase, just so you know. Well, dairy processors could be tempted to go south and buy dairy proteins from the United States, illegally, a quarter of the price, and, uh, and bring, bring those proteins back here. Uh, it has happened before. They've actually done that. Um, they've done it between 2015 and 2018 when the, when the board, when the commission was a little bit abusive. And so what could happen is a reduction in quota and the disappearance of many more dairy farms as a result. You were talking about how the, this is the, the Canadian Dairy Commission that has set these prices based on the idea that the dairy farmers are having to pay more and therefore this is covering their costs. Do they have a point? Uh, I would say yes. I mean, logically, of course, uh, inflation is an issue across the board. Uh, I honestly wasn't overly shocked by that 8.4% because I know what's going on. The cha- <laughs> Excuse me. The challenge... Uh, the concern that I have is the lack of, of transparency. When you actually look at uh, the press release, there are no numbers. 
And when you look at uh, past years, typically they would post a, a report uh, which is about seven pages long. It's always worded the same way. They do change the numbers. They claim that they actually uh, contact 200, 250 different dairy farmers, uh, which is likely true. But are, is the data uh, verified by competent authorities or accountants? Uh, are we, what kind of data are we looking at? So we don't have access to raw data. We've asked uh, the CDC to have access to the raw data. We a- we've asked the CDC to have names of accountants involved in the data collection. We've never received any names. There are no names disclosed in these reports. Reports are written in a way that you know, an undergraduate student in commerce uh, would probably write something like that. It's not very sophisticated, frankly. And so, and and on top of all that, they actually sent out a press release on a Friday night, just before the weekend. Uh, no social media, no press release sent directly to to me to media uh, like you guys. Uh, I had to do the work for them <laughs> on a Friday morning, sending out a tweet, and then it went viral, of course, because nobody knew about it. Well, nobody knew about it, and as we've talked about, you and I and, and you on many, many other places, I mean, we're already living in a time when food inflation is going way, way, way up, and I think, you know, as I said a moment ago, I think people can sort of live with it and deal with it to a point, but there does come a point when people really start noticing this stuff and really start making some decisions about what they will or will not buy. And I think we've seen that, for example, with meat, as you and I have talked about. But I never thought that milk would be the thing that would be doing this. Exactly. And so that's really my biggest concern. And, of course, we have supply management. It is it is an important regime for our dairy sector. But if, if we continue to make these kinds of decisions, supply management is not... Uh, going to protect our dairy industry as it was intended to do it's going to destroy us that's the thing <laughs> by by becoming too greedy you'll force processors and restaurant operators to go to go elsewhere to buy to buy milk and and there's going to be a continuous cycle of of quota reduction that would lead us to see the entire sector uh, being disseminated by within the next 10 years or so. So it's really concerning. And, and frankly, dairy farmers don't necessarily care because they'll cash out. They'll cash out, they'll make their money, and they'll move on. And the rest in the system will continue to make money until there's no money to be made uh, at all because people will just buy milk <laughs> illegally somewhere else. How would they cash out? I mean, I assume you mean selling their farms, but who's going to buy them if the industry is not going well? Boards. So boards, so what they do, so quotas are, are based on domestic demand for, for milk, essentially. So every year, say the Ontario Dairy Board, in your case, would look at demand and say, okay, we need so much quota, and if there are, there's too much, too much quota in the system, they'll buy people out. That's how it works. And we're, yeah, and we're this not was... talking like tens of thousands of dollars here. An average farm to buy them out would be worth maybe three, four million dollars. Yeah, and I'm going back now, and you can remind me, but I mean, this was an issue in an election not long ago, was it not? The whole idea of the uh, the supply management and whether this was something that should be continued with, and that's the other thing I wonder about: is if you push this hard for this kind of increase, does it raise the issue again? 
that maybe this is something we should be reconsidering? Because you don't offer this in any other industry. No, we don't. And, and frankly, I think that the core system is important to, ma- to be maintained. But uh, as we suggested in our document called Supply Management 2.0, which we published last fall along with the University of Guelph, uh, we basically created a roadmap to make sure that supply management does work for Canadians and the dairy sector. And the first thing we need to do is to reform the Canadian Dairy Commission. It's governance and the way it operates, because right now the CDC, a crown corporation owned by Canadians, is operating like it is a lobby group supporting the Dairy Farmers of Canada. Uh, the Dairy Farmers of Canada, the most likely the most powerful lobby group in the country, and the Canadian Dairy Commission are one. It's as simple as that, and that's a problem. So if you were a gambling man on the stock market, is now the time then to invest in oat milk and soy milk and <laughs> cashew milk and all those other milks because people are going to move that way? Uh, I wouldn't bet against it. Yeah, because, I mean, there are, there are major headwinds. Uh, dairy is facing major headwinds beyond governance here. I mean, we're looking at uh, a marketplace filled with consumers concerned about the environment with, uh, with COP26 going on in Glasgow. Uh, there are a lot of people concerned about animal welfare, about their own health. Uh, so there's, there's lots going on here. The last thing you want is to give another excuse to consumers to walk away from the dairy sector. Yeah, maybe. You know, you mentioned the Glasgow thing. Uh, how much do you want to bet that even though they say they're concerned about the, you know, animals and cows and all that kind of stuff for the environment, they're all eating steaks over there. You know they are. We all know they are on their private jets that they all flew in on. No, 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 you're story wrong. For it's another caviar. Day. It's caviar. And, well, and caviar, yeah, that yeah. too. That's just sprinkled on the steaks. Maybe. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, well, you got to wash it down and with they, something. And so. they flew over there, bunch of wokes. <laughs> yeah, on their private jets, eating their steaks sprinkled with caviar and washed down with champagne. See, it's it's how it's it works. Cynical, uh, man. It's or maybe it's too late at night. I don't know. Well, <laughs> you know one thing: they weren't sitting there guzzling, gu- you know, cups of milk on their private jets when they went over. <laughs> that was not happening. Doctor exactly. Sylvain Charlebois, we always love having you on. Thanks for the time today. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, yeah, you will notice. Yeah, based on everything we're hearing, if you consume dairy. Any kind of dairy. And again, I mean, what makes this so difficult is there are, even if you say, well, I don't drink milk. I I don't have cups of milk every day. Chances are, unless you're lactose intolerant and specifically, specifically, pardon me, going out of your way to avoid dairy, you're consuming it somewhere along the way during the day. You're putting cream in your coffee. You're having an ice cream. You're, as I say, having a yogurt. You're having this, you're having that. There's dairy in a lot. Everything is about to go up in price. And when you when you look at all the other things that are going up in price right now, this is like the last thing we need, especially this kind of increase. 10, 12% in February increase in anything that you're going to buy dairy. Come on. I mean, I know they got to survive and I know they got to pay their prices, but at a certain point, I think people are just going to say, no, thanks. I'll find something else. I'll I'll milk that oat (laughs) and make something out of that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This afternoon, a judge handed down a ruling on a motion that was in place or a request that was in place to stop the city of Hamilton from clearing out tent cities, encampments within the city. They had asked these, the, the, those fighting for it had asked for an injunction that would prohibit the city from following through on its bylaw and getting rid of these 
pop-up tent towns. Uh, the judge ruled against that motion, says the city is entitled to continue to enforce its bylaw. And so tent cities theoretically then would be illegal or at least could be removed. Now, I want to read you a little bit from a letter that was sent to me. We asked those from the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic who were helping to fight this case. We asked them to join us. They're, they said they're not doing interviews right now, but they sent this. Uh, it's a statement. I can't read the whole thing. It's long, but I'll read a chunk of it. We're disheartened that the court considered the desperate act of sleeping in an encampment as a choice. We are concerned this decision risks perpetuating the stigmatization of the unhoused population. By the city's own admission, shelters are full and are unable to meet people's disability-related needs. This gap often results in people being denied entry or kicked out. This segment of the population will now be left to sleep outside in harm's way without the use of a tent to shield them from the harsh elements. Some will move further off the grid and into hiding, disconnecting from vital supports like medical and street outreach. And then goes on to say, this decision is not an endorsement or license for the city to aggressively and violently evict homeless persons into a cycle of displacement. That is, and again, it's a much longer statement, but that would, it would take up almost all the time we have to read it all. That is the view of those who were fighting for this, um, you know, challenge to, to the city's bylaw. So what does the city have to say about it? Well, Councillor Jason Farr, Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr, um, whether by plan or by circumstance has become one of the faces, one of the main faces of this. He, uh, as I say, for by plan or otherwise has become the spokesman, I guess, in a lot of ways for this situation. He joins us now. Councillor, thanks for the time today. Well, thank you, Scott. And I don't think it's anybody, anybody's interest to plan for it, but certainly Ward 2 has more than its uh, share of uh, encampments and the size of those encampments in a park deficit ward is uh, not hard to ignore. So what happens now? The city's allowed to dismantle these tent cities. What happens now? Or do we know? Well, we have the right, like every other city, to enforce a bylaw that prohibits camping in parks. And so we'll get back to that. Uh, for now, our communication staff have shared with council mostly the outcome and reminding many of us of the process we had in place prior to the law where we weren't able to do any enforcement of this uh, bylaw uh, during the uh, court case. So for now, um, that process is back. I know that a large majority of uh, staff from different divisions on this file will be meeting first thing in the morning and, 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 and go over, you know, the way forward. Would you anticipate that this is going to now move forward, that the, there will be attempts to dismantle these these tents and these encampments? Well, we already had that process in place. It's, unfortunately, sure. it, it wasn't all that effective. We, as a council on August 9th, I think I shared with you soon after on your program, Scott, that, you know, 11 of us, save for wards one, ward three, and ward eight counselors said we need to get back to this bylaw that prohibits overnight camping in our parks and public places. We can't be the only city that permits this. There's uh, obviously uh, proof of uh, migration from uh, homeless individuals to our city since. And what has happened since is we went from 20 encampments to 44. So the, the current process was in play and there was some enforcement, but done in a very respectful way, which I know will continue. What I'm interested in, and I think I, in fact, I know speak for a large and growing majority of 
residents that are frankly living in fear, residents that are confused, residents that are very upset that we're heading in the wrong direction, um, that we need to be a little bit more efficient. We can still be respectful, but we need to be efficient and we need to be sustainable. So what happened in those previous cases over the course of a couple of months since August 9th, where the majority of us said, we can't be the only city that allows this, um, we were maybe being a little too uh, respectful. And unfortunately, the groups, the ham smarts uh, that the legal clinic is representing, the uh, Hamilton Encampment Support Network, and of course, those who are sleeping and living in an inhumane and unsafe way, uh, they just continued to grow and to a point where we were double the number of encampments in our city. And so we can't have that anymore. So we need to be sustainable. When we enforced before, Scott, a day, a couple of hours later, all the tents returned, if not more. Uh, This was after a council resolution that said, here's the law. We're going back to the pre-pandemic law, the law that we have that's no different than any other city. And in fact, it was worse. And so we need a sustainable enforcement where we don't see the return of these encampments because I can tell you, Scott, a large, large and growing amount of fearful residents are, they've reached their limit. They're telling me enough is enough. And as far as your statement that you read from the Hamilton Legal Clinic, and God bless them, they do amazing work on this issue. We are completely not aligned, quite obviously, but the reality is, in so many cases, in most cases, many of the encamped individuals in our city right now have had safer and more humane options. They just refuse to take them. And it's very unfortunate, but I believe that some of the folks working you know, uh, with the Hamilton Legal Clinic or the legal clinic is representing, uh, aligned with these outreach advocates that are supporting this inhumane, unsafe way to live, are nurturing this. So they're having tent donations. They're promoting and empowering this kind of lifestyle. And, you know, individuals that are encamped are refusing options or, you know, or skirting around uh, a direct contact with municipal law enforcement or police to avoid having to leave these tents. And I I think that that hasn't been good. It's now worse because the weather's getting worse and, and it's not something that someone should avoid. I would argue that those folks should be helping those individuals get to those shelters because shelters aren't just a bed and hot water. They're full of services. It's, it's, it's individualized needs that are being catered to with an ultimate goal that mirrors our goal with the city, which is housing first. And we've been at that for a long time, and we've won international awards for it. We're very, very good at that, and that's our focus. I'm going to ask you something that I know is an unfair question because with the time we have, there's no possible way to answer this properly, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Is there anything between point A and point B? You've got the people who don't want to go into the shelters, as you described, for whatever reason. You have the, the, the tents. Is there is there anything in between, any services or something the city can do to say, you know, I know you don't want to go into those places we're providing, but we can still help in some way? Or is it one or the other? It's a great question. And it's one, actually, the judge, Goodman, I was... Uh party to both days, full testimony days, and he he was listening, and he said a few things that were telling as well how he felt as a judge that he doesn't make rules, he enforces rules, and he was a little uncomfortable to that end, but he also brought that point up. Is there another option? Is there uh, an opportunity to find one location in the city and allow the homeless who prefer to sleep rough live outdoors? But our defense rightly said that's not a good option. That's essentially 
um, a, a second tier shelter system without the supports, potentially without the washrooms, without the the things people need to, to get on the right track in life. But to your question, we do have hotels and we created a, quite a number of spaces in hotels, especially for families and women and singles uh, throughout our city. There's a number of locations. So, you know, if you don't want to go into the shelter, at the very least, get into one of these hotel spaces. It's funded, it's approved by council, and it's one of the many aspects of addressing housing and homelessness that council has been very much a part of, uh, very much passionately a part of, that unfortunately when the narrative was out there mostly about leave these poor folks in parks alone was overlooked. And, and that's just one of many cases where we're, we're addressing the issues that we're aware of and we've been aware of for some time. For the most part, most of the individuals should get themselves into a shelter or a hotel, Scott. For some, there are greater challenges. And as that letter that you read from indicated, uh, they speak specifically to the Ministry of Health. That, that is a direct plea to any area of government that our municipality is, does not have purview over. Uh, mental health and health issues are things that the ministry needs to step up on under the umbrella of homelessness and housing, and they haven't. And outreach doctors who get paid by the Ministry of Health aren't going after their bosses who sign their paychecks. And I think it's about time we support them, the appellants to the city in this case, in doing so because they are crucial, uh, the work they do with the homeless population and the relationships they have, but they have no tools from the very people Mm. who they work for, the ministry. Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. Uh, As a reminder, if you missed it at the beginning, we did ask those who were uh, fighting for the encampments, uh, the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic, they sent us a statement but uh, declined or respectfully declined to come on today. That's fine. But um, uh, just in case anyone's saying, well, why are you only talking to one side? The other side was offered the opportunity and we did read some of the statements. So there you go. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A couple weeks ago, Go a rather significant anniversary. It kind of just slipped by and went unnoticed. And that was the 20th anniversary of the creation of the release of the iPod. And, you know, you think about the iPod, no longer did we have to wear a Walkman if we wanted to take our music with us, or before that, carry a giant ghetto blaster on our shoulder, or even have that portable CD player that came out that were popular for a while that you could plug into your car and listen to it in your car stereo as long as you could find a way to keep that CD player absolutely still in the car because if you hit a bump or whatever, it would skip and your music would be lost. Nonetheless, all those things became irrelevant, essentially, when the iPod came into existence. Alan Cross is the guy behind a journal of musical things. Great music writer, great pop culture writer. He wrote about this the other day. Alan, how are you tonight? You know, the porch with the dog. That is, uh, that is pretty good. And probably, well, I don't know if you've got an iPod with you. You know, I was thinking as I was saying those things, though, you talk about the Walkman being a thing of the past. I have warm, fuzzy memories of the Walkman. I really do. That's one of those, it seemed like a very optimistic thing, the Walkman somehow. Yeah, it first came out in 1979, and then there were a whole bunch of copycat ones. I ended up with, uh, I think I had a Walkman, about 83 or 84, and uh, it, it was... I'm sure it's somewhere in the crawl space because I never throw out these things. But yeah, it, it was a big deal, you know, this idea of being able to take music with you absolutely anywhere and enjoy the privacy of your own headphones. 
rather than a boom box or, or something else like that. Uh, and it was only a matter of time before that evolved, it did, into the portable CD player. For a while, certain parts of the world had the portable mini-disc player, which was a little bit better. And then in 1998, we began to see MP3 players. But none of them worked very well and were kind of kludgy in the way they were operated. And you couldn't store an awful lot of music on them. But then on the 23rd of October of 2001, uh, Apple introduces the iPod and everything changes. So, and I agree with you, and I want to talk about why that was, but it, it amazes me that I heard nothing on the 23rd of October about this. Maybe I just wasn't listening in the right places or reading the right things, but so often these moments in these, these inventions or moments when technology have come out, we remember them so fondly. This one just seemed to slide by. And yet, I, I mean, you described it as, what did you describe it as? It was like one of the most important pieces of consumer electronics in the history of the universe. Um, like it was a big, big deal. And yet somehow it sort of slipped right by. Yeah, you could go onto some of the tech blogs and they would have uh, short little stories on, on the iPod. But uh, Apple certainly didn't make a big deal. In fact, I read one tech story that said Apple declined to comment for this article. Uh, Apple is a very forward-thinking company. They don't like looking back on the way things were. Uh, they would prefer you buy the iPhone 13 and new MacBooks rather than talk about uh, a device that they barely support. There still is an iPod. Uh, it's the iPod Touch. Uh, which is basically an iPhone without the cellular phone capability. Um, and at one time, there were, oh, I think we went through about two dozen iterations of iPods. There were the, the iPod classics with the wheel, and then the Nano, then the Shuffle, and then, uh, then the Touch. And each one of those had its own um, evolutionary development. There was, as you say, digital music before this. There were MP3 players. Why was the leap then from an iPod? What was so good about the iPod that changed? Because you're right, the MP3 players were, I don't know, they were okay, I suppose. But what, what was it about the iPod that suddenly made everything take off? Well, it, first of all, it looked cool. Uh, let's not forget how cool it was when you saw somebody with those white earbuds coming out of their ears. Uh, you knew that they had an iPod. Uh, it was really easy to use. The first iPod had a physical click wheel. It actually turned, and it used something called nested menus to really you know, find artists, find albums, find songs really, really quickly. Uh, third, it was quite spacious for the time. The very first iPod had five gigabytes, and Steve Jobs um, famously said, you can now have a thousand songs in your pocket, which was far bigger than, I think, any other MP3 player at the time. In fact, what Apple had done is they'd gone to Toshiba and bought up all their 1.8-inch rotating hard drives, and they made that the, the centerpiece of, uh, well, the, the guts of, of the iPod. So uh, the first iPod could hold 5 gigabytes, and then the next iteration could hold 10, and then 20, and then 40. And, uh, you know, this is also before streaming, so the, I, we, we wanted lots of these to go with us everywhere. We had to have big hard drives in our pockets. And it went all the way up to the 160 gigabytes uh, Apple Classic, which could store uh, about 40,000 songs. And that was really cool. I mean, who would ever want yeah. more than 40,000 songs? But then uh, what I, happens is, is the, the iPhone comes along. And the iPhone uh, is, like I said earlier, basically a touch with cellular phone capability. 
And it cannibalized all the iPod sales uh, to the point where we only have the one version that's available now. It hasn't been updated since 2019. Apple doesn't even break out how many iPods they sell. Uh, they haven't done that since, I think the last time they reported on iPod sales was 2009. So they've moved on. Just, mm. it's, it's, it's not even an, a line item in their, in their financial report. It, it is amazing to me because, again, we're only talking 20 years and in the grand scope of history. I mean, think of 20 years, it's nothing. And yet, based on the, the pace of change, if you look at those original iPods, they look so antiquated. It's, it's just amazing to think that that's only 20 years ago and they look so simple almost. So technically, I don't know, whatever the word would be. It just it seems like such a long way ago when you talk technology-wise. Yeah, it, it sure does. But you have to remember when they came up, they were the bomb. They were the most advanced things that you could possibly have as a music device. And, you know, no more cassettes, no more CD players that skipped, no more of these clunky, chunky MP3 players that were hard to load, hard to program, hard to, to access. Uh, it was very, very, very cool. Now, the other thing that the iPod had uh, working uh, with it is, is iTunes. So iTunes comes out um, as a basically a CD ripper, and then the iTunes Music Store comes along. So now you, have, you could buy digital music directly from Apple, loaded into your iPod within seconds and be on your way. Uh, and this came out at a time when file sharing piracy was at its absolute height. Mm -hmm. And the recording, recording music industry didn't know what to do about it. Uh, iTunes comes along and says, well, here's a, uh, a very secure way of selling digital music online. Uh, give us all your music to sell. And they were over a barrel. They, they couldn't do anything. So the major labels basically caved to Steve Jobs and say, okay, well, here you go. You can be the number one, the main seller of digital music files online. At one point, iTunes controlled about 70% of the digital music market. Do you think that the music industry was excited about this? Do, do you think they looked at the iPod when it first came out as something that was going to be a salvation no. of the industry with all that piracy? Or do you think they were terrified of it? Well, they, they were terrified of it because uh, originally the first couple of CD players, of uh, MP3 players, were made by some... Um, South Korean companies. And there was the Diamond Rio, which was the one that really, I guess, the, the, the biggest of the pre-iPod MP3 players in North America. They took them to court. And the record labels took a, a Diamond Rio to court because they said that this was, this was copyright infringement. You, you, you can't rip a CD, turn it into an MP3, and put it on, a, uh, on, on, on this device. But what the, the Supreme Court of the U.S. did was they looked back at a 1976 ruling that made VCRs legal. And that was, right. an interest, that was a really interesting uh, case because the Supreme Court of the U.S. voted five to four to make VCRs legal. That's how close VCRs came to being illegal. Um, because Disney and Universal and a couple of other companies uh, you know, brought suit about uh, uh, copyright infringement. Same thing was applied to the MP3 players. The same sort of decision was made. So once that decision was cleared, you know, Apple was, was free to move in and, and do what they wanted. Now, you got to remember, too, that 2001, Apple was a company in big, big trouble. Steve Jobs had come back a couple of years earlier. He had tried to rescue the company. They were still losing about $200 million a quarter. They bring out this, this iPod thing that a lot of people didn't get originally because of MP3s, whatever. But it ends up being the device that saves Apple and turns it into what is now a $2.5 trillion company. They sold about $400 million 
iPods, which uh, at the margins they were getting was, was really, really good. And at one point, they controlled somewhere oh, north of 70% of the digital mm. music player market. Uh, and again, it only all this only came to an end when the iPhone came along and uh, revolutionized everything. Well, again, and, and when you talk about, again, when you talk about it saved the company, um, we don't, I would, I would suggest that probably we don't have the iPhone if not for the iPod, because that was the, the middle step between those two things. It may have come along at some point, but it, it was the idea of the iPod in your pocket, that device, I am positive, that led to the idea of the iPhone. Well, by the time we got to the touch, absolutely. Um, one of the things that are, as people forget about the iPod is that it's basically just a hard drive. And uh, so you, at, at the beginning, using a technology they called FireWire, you were able to download non-musical digital files to your iPod. Uh, and and for, one, for, for quite some time, iPods were considered security risks at, uh, at certain companies because you could simply plug it into a computer, and if you knew what you were doing, you could steal a whole bunch of company secrets and just walk out with them on your iPod. Huh. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the U.S. government came to Apple and had a couple of special iPods made for government use for maybe that very same reason. Uh, but yeah, uh, that, when you look at the touch especially, you can see where things were going. Although, if you look at, if you read some of the books about the development of the iPod and iPhone, there's some disagreement whether or not there is a straight line that Steve Jobs for a while resisted the whole idea of getting into the cellular phone market. And he thought, no, no, we're, we're a consumer electronics company. We're not a phone company. We don't want to do these things. But in the end, he was persuaded. And that's where we end up seeing the iPhone and the end of the iPod. I got a couple of minutes left. And one of the things that I think a lot of people may have forgotten until we're going to talk about it here that really brought the iPod into a lot of attention was when U2 jumped on board. And now U2 was somehow involved with the whole iPod. How important was that, that there was a huge band at the time that seemed to say, you know what, this is something that's really cool and we're going to put our own music on this when you buy it and this is what you should be picking up. Well, not only that, in 2004, they had uh, the album How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. They released a U2 iPod. In fact, I got one. It's red and black and uh, had a uh, 20 gig hard drive. And uh, Apple and, and, and U2 were, were in bed together for very, you know, for, for a good long time. Uh, there was a point where, if you look at one of the icons for music uh, in the Apple ecosystem, it was a guy standing at a microphone. That was actually Bono's silhouette. So they were huh. really, really, really tight until BlackBerry came along and sort of stole them away for that uh, 360 tour. Uh, that didn't work out well for, for anybody. And <laughs> now they're, 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 they're back together. And, of course, they were set in infamous time when uh, everybody got a U2 album on their iPhone, whether they wanted one or not. It, uh, it's not really a music thought, this last one that I've got, but I, it, you know, I want to bring it up with you anyway, and that is um, I can't help but think that as you've been talking here about moving from point A to point B, we got the iPod, we got the iPhone, these, these immense, massive steps in technology forward. It just seems like such a long time since there's been something that new and that exciting. And again, I mean, I know we're talking in the span of like 15, 20 years, but everything today seems to be a tweak now on something that already exists rather than this incredibly exciting new thing that no one's seen before. 
Yeah, everything that's worth inventing has been invented. We heard that uh, a number of times throughout human history. But, you know, somebody's going to come along with something that they will. Said we're going to have to have. I don't know if it's going to be hardware. Maybe, it's, maybe we've moved away from hardware. Maybe it's all about inventing new software. And if you want to say that, well, then you look no further than TikTok and what Facebook is trying to do with Meta. So uh, we'll see. I, I honestly can't imagine, a, a, you know, with... Uh, beyond the, the, the smartphone, which, you know, does everything that you could possibly ask it to do. I can't imagine something greater than that, but, you know, I'm not very smart. Well, I think you and I, months and months ago, I think it was you, um, talked with me because there was an invention at the time where you could sit and, without headphones, you could sit and listen to music that was directed only at you in the room and no one else in the room would hear it or something. And I thought... That was going to be the new thing. I mean, how cool is that? You don't even need headphones. And then I never heard about it again. And I thought, well, I guess not. I guess I whiffed on that one. Yeah, there was that one. And then there was another one where you didn't need a mouse. You just directed everything with your finger in the air. Um, There were a couple of things along those lines. But for whatever reason, they never caught on. So we'll see. It's it's, it's, to say that everything that's been invented, everything that's been, uh, that's that's worth inventing has been invented uh, is, is silly. Something is going to come along, but you know what could it possibly be? The, but, what? You know, no, nobody, envi- nobody envisioned the microwave. Nobody envisioned the CD player. Nobody envisioned the the iPod. Maybe you should combine those three things, and now we could have an iPod microwave to carry with you to cook your lunch on the way. See, now just just blue skying. You and I are coming up with ideas that could make us trillionaires too. You know, I bet you there's a microwave that you can <laughs> buy that has a Bluetooth app to go along with. Yeah, it. I'm, sure. I'm sure there is. Why wouldn't there be? The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.